Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Friday, November 17th, 2023. In this week's episode, a professional hockey player is now facing manslaughter charges after an in-game collision that resulted in another player's throat being slit with an ice skate. Also breaking news as the 73-year-old matriarch of the Adelson family has been arrested in the plot to kill her former son-in-law while allegedly attempting to flee the country. But first, Caitlin Armstrong has been convicted of murdering her boyfriend's pro cycling mistress. Today, we are joined by Jonna Spilbor, a former prosecutor and criminal defense attorney, a legal analyst you can catch on Fox News, News Nation, including many other television and media outlets, and a friend of the show. Jonna, welcome back. Thanks, Josh. Always fun to be here with you. Oh, good. I was looking forward to this. Mm-hmm. I know that you follow these cases closely, and I always appreciate your insights, I, your your hot takes on these. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to an opportunity for you to share a little bit more about your thoughts because I, I see you on the news and I know you have a little bit of a time constraint, but we'll get more in depth into some of these now. Uh, so let's jump right in. First, we go to Austin, Texas, where earlier this week, a jury convicted Caitlin Armstrong of the 2022 shooting of a professional cyclist, Mariah Wilson. Prosecutors allege that Armstrong shot Wilson in a jealous rage after Armstrong's boyfriend, Colin Strickland, also a professional cyclist, continued a relationship with Wilson behind her back. Armstrong, who was captured last year in Costa Rica after fleeing the country and receiving plastic surgery, is only weeks removed from a second escape attempt before she began her trial. Evidence of both escape attempts were allowed at trial. Along with this evidence, prosecutors presented a wave of digital forensic evidence, surveillance video, motive evidence, and other circumstantial evidence, not the least of which was traces of Armstrong's DNA on Wilson's bike, which was discarded at the crime scene, as well as her DNA on a Sig Sauer 9mm pistol, which was alleged to have been used in the shooting. Additionally, authorities presented evidence suggesting that the GPS in Armstrong's Jeep placed her vehicle within 49 feet of the crime scene at the time of the murder and evidence that Armstrong's phone was turned off around the time of Wilson's death before reconnecting sometime shortly after the shooting. Armstrong's defense largely highlighted the fact that there was no direct evidence or eyewitnesses in the case that saw the defendant carry out the shooting. Attorneys for Armstrong were also critical of law enforcement, alleging that authorities had not explored other potential suspects, surprisingly even hinting at the possibility that Armstrong's then-boyfriend, Colin Strickland, could have had a hand in the shooting. While the defense presentation was brief, wrapping up their witnesses in a day, the jury deliberations were even shorter, ultimately reaching a guilty verdict in just under two hours. The trial will now enter the punishment phase where prosecutors and the defense will present witnesses before the jury decides the length of Armstrong's sentence. This morning, the prosecution argued that Armstrong should be sentenced to a minimum of 40 years in prison. All right, Jonna, uh, jump right in. First of all, I just want to get your reaction to this verdict. Did they get it right? Are you surprised at how short it took them? 
Well, they broke the land speed record for a guilty <laughs> verdict in this case, right? And under two hours is, is crazy. And that sends a big message. It probably doesn't bode well for what the jury is going to recommend for her sentencing. And, and before we uh, end the topic of Caitlin Armstrong, I do want to talk about that unusual fact. Normally, juries aren't the ones who in, who decide the sentence. But in yeah. Texas, that is the case. But first, let me say. If ever there was a strong circumstantial case, this was it. And I always, whenever I'm trying to explain a circumstantial case to anyone, I always say, look, crimes happen and you have a bunch of dots that need to be connected. Because why? When you have a circumstantial case, it means you didn't commit the crime with a whole bunch of eyewitnesses. You don't have a lot of direct evidence. That's not uncommon because if you're going to break the law, you try to do it without anybody knowing that you're doing it. So circumstantial cases are quite frequently brought. This one, I don't think the prosecution missed one of those dots that you had to connect. I mean, they had everything right down to motive, which is never an element. But it was kind of, I think, maybe the jurors said to themselves, well, if it wasn't Ms. Armstrong, then who was it? Her DNA is all over everything that could it could possibly be all over. She had the motive. She had the opportunity. And most importantly... She tried to fly the coop, and that's always considered indicia of guilt. This was almost open and shut. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Um, and I do want to get into that sentencing issue as well, because I find that to be fascinating. I'm sure that you do. But you're right. I mean, to you know, we talk about this all the time, that people somehow characterize circumstantial cases as somehow being weaker or more difficult to pro yeah. prove. Essentially, folks, all we're talking about is every case that ever occurred where you don't have an eyewitness who, who saw it take place. So when you're talking about murder in particular, the, 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 there's two people who usually know about the murder and one of them ends up dead. And so you do not have an eyewitness and you're mostly putting these cases together circumstantially. DNA evidence is circumstantial evidence. If you want to talk about how strong circumstantial evidence can be, so yes, it was a circumstantial case and that's how people like to characterize it in the news, but it was an incredibly strong case. As I was reading the just the summary there, it, it, it's a mouthful, all of the stuff that they were able to present. I, I agree with you, but I'm glad that you highlighted her flight after, because to me, and I wanna hear your thoughts, to me, that was the most powerful. I mean, all of that other stuff, I think they still could have proved their case, but it's the conduct of someone afterwards that I think carries a lot of weight with jurors. What are your thoughts? Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. And I often say that jurors, even though they're not really supposed to do what I'm about to say they do, they run these scenarios through their own filter. In other words, you could have a juror sitting there saying, what would I have done if I were innocent? What would I have done? And none of them are going to say, well, you know, I would have flown to Costa Rica and become a yoga teacher. Like nobody's going to say that. I wouldn't try to evade the police. Most people, in fact, sometimes to their detriment, I can have a client saying, I'm, I'm, I'm innocent. I want to talk. I want to talk. I want to testify. And I'll be like, let's take it down a notch. Even though you're innocent, that's why you shouldn't talk. So if people are innocent, they don't behave that way. Jurors are going to run it through their own filter because they're human beings. And when they see that kind of conduct afterwards, that's when they that's when they do this, Josh, and just cross yeah. their arms and the decision is made. Yeah, 100 percent. That seal that seals the deal, because yeah. like you said, they just 
they may be able to buy a weird set of circumstances and someone finding themselves in a rough spot, but they just cannot wrap their heads around somebody who would conduct that conduct themselves that way after the fact. I agree with you. I thought I thought that was really the strongest part of the whole case. All right, let's talk about this sentencing situation here because this from a lawyer's perspective makes me uneasy and I'm curious to hear your thoughts. So what so just so listeners understand, the jury has not been released in this case. Now it's moved into the sentencing phase with the jury still involved. So they're arguing in front of the jurors and they're bringing in a lot more evidence than they would not have been able to present otherwise, because now they're talking about her character, who she is as a person, all of these other things. And they're asking the jurors to set the sentence here according to certain guidelines that it's not a a free for all, but it's in the hands of the jurors to give this recommendation. What are your thoughts on that? How do you feel about it? I think it is such an odd way to do things. Now, where I come from, in all the states that I've practiced, jurors didn't get that opportunity. It, oh, yeah. here's what happens. You have you go to trial, and if your client is found guilty, then there's a, a brief period of time where um, they sit in a jail cell and they get interviewed by the probation department or the Department of Corrections, and you get to sort of call all their family and friends who are going to say nice things about them. And then you present that package to a judge, not the jury. And the reason why that's significant is because think about where we are now. You maintain your innocence in front of this jury. You have a lawyer who gets up and says, my client is innocent, my client didn't do it. The jury comes back and says, huh, no, yeah, she did. And now you have to face those same jurors and say, well, okay, you're right, but she's really a great girl underneath all of yeah. that murderness. Like it just doesn't, it, it's contrary to logic. Um, and so that's why I'm very uncomfortable with it too. And you've got to tread very carefully because this isn't going to be the end of the road. Certainly she's going to appeal. She will find a basis to appeal and she will. So you can't throw your client under the bus in an effort to get her 20 years instead of 40 years. It's a delicate, delicate balance. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that aspect of it, that you you have spent the last several weeks arguing your your client's innocence. Mm-hmm. And now what credibility are you able to maintain to stand up in front of those same 12 people and say, OK, OK, you got you got us. OK, got but right. now let's look at how you should be sympathetic. Yeah, that's a real that's a real 180 that they have to pull and and it might be um putting those those attorneys in a really difficult spot especially if they're thinking about i mean think about this you know does that affect their ability during the guilt phase because maybe they don't want to go for broke because they know they got to maintain some credibility with these people at the sentencing phase if they feel like their clients going down the way i was thinking about it is that judges are supposed to maintain objectivity and judges have the benefit of seeing murder trials again and again and again and again and they have a vast experience to pull upon to place this murder in perspective whereas these jurors it might be the first time they're ever watching a murder trial the first time they're ever hearing about a murder and they might be inflamed and not be applying that same perspective that a judge would to sentencing. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm rambling, but do you follow where where I'm going on this? I get where you're going exactly, because the judge has an obligation to be fair and partial and objective. The jury does not have that that obligation. In fact, the jury is not being, well, I guess they're being fair, 
But once they've made their decision, they're no longer impartial. They have decided that somebody is guilty. So now you hamstring the defense attorney. Like the, the defense attorney can't look at the jurors, jurors and say, you got it wrong, but I'm obligated to, uh, you know, hold my client in a, in a great light in front of you to try to get you to give her the minimum amount of time. Like you can't do that. The judge, on the other hand, and what you were explaining is, you know, they get to sit back and they know that it's the attorney's job to present good character evidence. And even the defendant at that time can still look at the judge who did not make the decision of guilt and say, I didn't do this, but, uh, you know, here's what my attorney is going to present for me. That defendant can't say in front of the 12 people who decided her guilt, I didn't do this because then they're going to cross their arms again yeah. and say, well, then you get 99 years. So it's a, yeah. it's just strange the way they do it there in Texas. Yeah. 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 It, it, I, I'm not used to it. I've never practiced somewhere that I've seen that happen. And it, it just, it does make me uneasy <laughs> uh, to, to try to figure out how I would handle that situation. Well, like I said, they're arguing it this morning. We're we're in one of those predicaments that we often find ourselves on this show where by the time this is released, they probably will have sentenced her. So I'm sure we'll hear it from our viewers, but we will continue to watch that and update folks um, as we do learn the sentencing. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn to uh, Tallahassee, Florida, where hot on the heels of Charlie Adelson's conviction in the 2014 murder for hire plot that left a Florida state law professor dead. Adelson's 73-year-old mother, Donna Adelson, has been arrested and charged in the case. The killing, which prosecutors say was spurred by a custody dispute between Charles's sister, Wendy Adelson, and her ex-husband, Dan Markell, was allegedly orchestrated with help from the family's matriarch. Charles Adelson's trial, prosecutors presented evidence that not only incriminated Charles, but simultaneously implicated Donna's involvement. In wiretaped phone conversations, texts, and emails in particular, Donna allegedly conspired with her son and other family members to hire the hitmen who would ultimately take Markel's life and subsequently participated in a cover-up in the wake of the shooting. This will be the fifth arrest in the decade-long investigation and the second member of the Adelson family to face charges. Donna was arrested at the airport with prosecutors claiming she was attempting to flee to Vietnam to avoid extradition. With her son set to face sentencing, Donna is now facing charges of murder along with conspiracy and solicitation. Jonna, this floored me. I, 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 I was I was really shocked not in the sense that I didn't see this coming, because I, I, I think a lot of people who were watching the trial understood how she was involved from the evidence that came forward. It's just amazing to me that this woman at the age that she is, the, the, the status that she have would be involved in this kind of conduct and now going to be, face charges that will probably put her in, in prison for the rest of her life. My question is this, though. 
knowing what we know from the trial, all of that evidence about the text messages and the wiretaps, why do you think prosecutors waited this long? Why did they wait until after his trial was over to bring charges against Donna? You know, I am actually confused by that. If you're involved in the conspiracy, you don't have to be the one to pull the trigger or you just have to be involved in the conspiracy. And I don't know whether they were waiting to see if they were going to maybe need her and grant her some immunity. Although, look, blood is thicker than water. She's the mother, you know, of the person who put this plot together. I don't know if she was going to ever give up her son. And also, why is Wendy not getting charged? Like, it's another thing I'm confused about. So I don't know why they they sort of stretched out the way they were um, arresting and charging people in this case. But or I don't know, maybe she really ticked them off because she could have been getting a pass. And then when she decided to leave for Vietnam, they the, the jig was up, I suppose. Yeah, I don't know. I I, 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 you make a good point. There could have been some discussion with her about you, you but you would think they put her in custody to have that discussion. I, I don't. And the, and the same with Wendy. You're right. If there's evidence and they feel like she's involved, what are they waiting for on her as well? Unless they feel like they're going to try to use her. But then you would think that the traditional way of going about that would be to arrest her and then put the squeeze on her to, to try yeah. to get her, her cooperation. And why is it that, you know, the, the children that are involved are Wendy's children. Why would your brother and your mother be fighting that battle for you? That like You would think since they're her kids, if she's involved in a custody battle, She's the one who's going to orchestrate this. She's the one who's going to say, do it. She's the one who's yeah. going to you know, call in the shots. So get her first, right? And maybe you get the, the mother last. So this was a very confusing way to charge and try this, this case. But I did yeah. think this is, this is my catchphrase for this case. Are you ready? Hold yeah. on to your hats because it's pretty good. The family that plots together rots together <laughs> that, that, is, that is good you got to trademark that that is that is very good i appreciate it um but th- that's a great point though too think about the it's not even just the psychology of charlie adelson this successful dentist that now is involved with gang members and murder for hire and cash deposits and all of this stuff but the mother and the and the daughter, the I mean, it, what kind of a sociopathic gene runs through that family that they're all willing to take part in a murder for hire? We're not talking about, hey, let's all cheat on our taxes. These are people who were all willing to pay for murder over a custody dispute. Mm-hmm. It just blows my mind that no one along the way said, hey. You know, uh, I thought we were all joking. You know, it, this was some dark humor, but we're not really going to do this, Army. And and they not only did they do it, they followed through on it. They tried to cover it up. And now you've got mom looking like she's going to to run to Vietnam, which to our point earlier, probably is going to be more some of the more convincing evidence to a jury if this ever heads to trial. Oh, yeah. And, and look, I'm sure the prosecutors take no comfort in charging a 73 year old woman with anything that's going to have her die in prison, right? If she's convicted, I'm sure they take no comfort in that. But also with just the facts, 
that you alluded to, like this wasn't a case where somebody, a parent was trying to take the children to another country where they were going to never see the other parent. Like, they, you know, they lived in one part of the state for starters. I don't believe there was any allegations of abuse. You know, could you imagine if you had grandchildren and, and there was allegations that they were being horribly abused? Would that spur you yeah. to want to kill the abuser? OK, yeah. maybe you can wrap your head around that. But this was just something inconvenient for the yeah. for the family, and they plot to and successfully pull it off. It's astounding. It is astounding. I just can't. I, I you're right. I can't imagine ever being pushed to the point over something like this that I thought, you know what, I'm going to take a person's life and then just live my. By the way, I'm going to take the father of my children's life and then just go live my life as as I would because I'm I'm entitled to that. It, yeah, I don't think jurors are gonna are gonna view I, I, her age. Putting her, even considering her age, I don't think she's gonna garner a lot of sympathy with with jurors if this ever does head to trial. So, just a fascinating development in a case that continues to evolve, and we will again keep our eyes on it and keep everyone updated. Finally, we move across the pond for our last case out of uh, Sheffield in the United Kingdom. Authorities have announced charges of manslaughter following a fatal in-game ice hockey collision. Adam Johnson, who played for the UK's Nottingham Panthers, died in the hospital last month after his throat was slit by the ice skate of an opposing team's player. Matt Petgrave of the Sheffield Steelers was involved in the collision with Johnson where his skate impacted Johnson's neck. Now, we have some video of that. It is grainy, but I want to show it to viewers and so, so that we have an opportunity to talk about one aspect of that video. We'll show you now. It looks like a routine hockey collision on the ice, but look again. You can see the skate of the player in red fly up and hit the other player in the neck. While authorities have not released the identity of the man who was arrested following a formal inquest into the death, all signs obviously point towards Petgrave. The incident, which horrifyingly occurred in front of nearly 8,000 fans in Sheffield's arena, has prompted hockey officials to examine player safety measures, specifically the use of neck guards and other cut restraint equipment. While the unnamed suspect has been released on bail, authorities have noted that their investigation continues and that further updates are forthcoming when available. All right, Jonna, I know we're dealing uh, with a different country here, so it's slightly different laws, theories of criminal liability. But but were you surprised by this charge or do you think they've got it spot on? No, I am surprised. And of course, okay. I'm running it through our, our lens of American jurisprudence. And yeah. I immediately asked myself, now, wait a minute, in order for them, if they were charging him here in the United States with manslaughter, for example, I think the case would turn on the actual intent of Petgrave when the blade hit the other player's neck. Like if it, look, I watch plenty of hockey games too. And for me, it's a, a fairly violent sport. I mean, you can almost claim it's a homicide on ice waiting to happen every time the players go out on the ice because dangerous, dangerous weapons, skates, the sticks, the pucks, any of those things can kill you. So did Petgrave, intentionally you know like when you're watching baseball and you try to take out the guy who's at second base so you can get in did he intentionally try to do that or was this just a slip a fall a blade a, a, wrong place wrong time 
That's what this case would turn on here. Uh, and let's yeah. assume that it's the same thing that it would it will turn on across the pond. And that's yeah. a very uh, fine point, a very fine point. I agree with you. There's a lot of nuance involved in this. And I wanted to show that video because even it is grainy. I don't know if they have an enhanced copy or what, but you're right. There's a lot of contact in hockey games and a lot of people end up flying around. But there was something about this collision that seemed awkward to me when I was watching it, where his leg does seem to fly up in a manner that didn't seem to uh, be natural given the collision. Now, you made the point about intent being an important part of this, and I wanted to highlight another part of this story where, interestingly, Petgrave was given a round of applause and a show of support by fans when he recently was announced at a game after the death, but before charges were filed. So it sounds like he's got fan support to some extent, yet mm -hmm. he also carries a reputation of being a dirty player. He was the most penalized player in that league last year with 129 infractions and 54 games. Given that reputation of being kind of a player who may play with some, what we might characterize as bad intent at times, do you think that played a role or should play a role in their decision to charge him here? I like that question because it's basically saying, should his character as a hockey player be taken into consideration? And we know here, you're not often allowed to bring in the bad character of somebody to prove conduct and conformity therewith, unless there's a pattern. So you said there was 129 other instances where he was cited. Well, I'd say that's a pattern. No. But what were the, you know, does that mean he was, what was he doing? Like, for example, if he ever came close to cutting another player and they're, they're heavily padded. So the only place you could break skin on another hockey player is the neck. If you think about it, well, in, in no. the face, depending on what their position. So if he was that kind of dirty player, then that evidence very well may come in and that could sink him. Or, you know, was this I, I was this some sort of exhibition game? I've got to get my facts clear on that. Was he just kind of like trying to be overly dramatic for the audience? And and then his feet came up and he wasn't intending to hit that the other player at all. That's going to be important. You know, that's what his defense is going to hone in on, that if there was zero. He, they're going to say there was zero intent in this particular game, regardless of how many other times he's been cited for dirty play. Yeah. Yeah. And that was my my last kind of question to you on this is that, you know, you're his defense attorney now. What are you going to argue? Intent is obviously the way you attack it. It sounds like you you have an answer, but please expound on that a little bit if you can. The, I see the weakness in this. It sounds like you do. We share the same thought. What what would your argue, best argument be as his attorney? I would really make the point that that there is a nuanced definition between intent and the level of recklessness needed to maintain a manslaughter charge. And here's where I think it gets very tricky. Can you even, is it even appropriate to argue or to charge anybody with any crime whose nexus or basis is recklessness when you are engaged in a reckless game? I mean, for, for my purposes, I think, like, like we said, hockey is a dangerous game. So how, you know, isn't it always sort of reckless because of the nature of the play? So it's almost as if you could argue, well, 
if you're not going to charge him with murder, then you shouldn't charge him with anything because it's sort of baked into the cake that this level of recklessness um, is could result in a, in a death by yeah. nature of the game itself, which I know it's kind of like a, a, a nuance. But to me, that's it. It's a dangerous sport. No, I, I agree with you. It it I, I think you put that so well. This sport encourages contact. I mean, it's 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 like football. They you've got guys running at full speed, 250-pound men running at full speed, wearing essentially weapons on them, mm-hmm. hitting each other as hard as they can. If somebody ends up injured or God forbid worse. We're not turning around and going, oh, hey, that was that was, you know, foul play there. That was criminal. Right. I think I think where this might draw a distinction and the more I think about it, I'm talking myself out of it. But the idea of that kick and if they somehow feel that he was trying to do something with that kicking his foot in the air and that may not have been to kill somebody, but it but it was so reckless that it led to that. For instance, yeah. I was thinking about, you're right, hockey's a contact sport, but if you take your stick and you swing it at somebody's head and knock them to the ground and bloody their head, nobody's going to turn around and go, hey, that's hockey. That's obviously you're 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 coming with beyond recklessness and now some sort of um uh criminal intent. And I'm wondering if that's kind of the analogy they're using with the way that he kicked his foot here with his skate. But also, I agree with that. If he were falling, can you can you like if you were falling and his leg went up, I think that's different than if he had control of his body and then, you know, intentionally did a kick. Also, maybe they're going to look at was there any interaction between those two players prior to the game? Was there oh, any interaction yeah. in the locker room? Did they have any sort of history with each other that might give rise to this being a crime as opposed to a pure accident? That's something a little more immediate than the other 129 times this particular player was cited. So that all has to come into the mix. But I don't like it, Josh. I'm going to tell you, I don't, I don't want sports now to become killing fields in the eyes of the law or in reality. Right? I don't want prosecutors to prosecute every professional player who, who hurts somebody, hopefully unintentionally. And I don't want players to think they can get away with murdering other players yeah. in the name of the game. So this is a real, this is an, going to be an interesting case for that reason alone. It's a slippery, slippery slope. It is. It really is. It's a, it's a, it's certainly um, not an easy call. And it, it was interesting that you're right. I, it's such an excellent point. Maybe that was what uh, was part of their decision making is they did go into the history of these two players. And maybe there was they felt that this was beyond an accident in the way that that collision took place. I don't know. We'll continue to watch it. But always your thoughts are 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 so great and so appreciated. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Oh, so that's easy. You can always visit my website, which is com, or my favorite Find me on Facebook. I try to interact as much as I can with uh, all the fine folks out there. So thank you again for having me. It's always a pleasure. Oh, absolutely. And we'll check out your Facebook. I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.